0: blog
1: talk radio hi good, hi good evening folks it's adriel hampton host of government 2.0 radio on blog talk radio and i'm here tonight with my co-hosts uh, steve wrestler and steve lunsford we are uh, doing a show on uh, government in second life we have a, a fantastic group of guests uh, with us tonight who will introduce in a few minutes I uh, want to wish everyone a Happy New Year. Hope your uh, holidays were great and um, that you're ready to go back to work tomorrow. Um, I want to uh, ask uh, uh, Steve uh, Steve Ressler, what's uh, going on? I, I know that you had some great posts on GovLoop about things going on next year, uh, plans and visions, and kind of the best of 209, which everybody had to, had to work on. Uh, what have you been thinking about in, uh, since the last show?
2: Uh, Well, first of all, I was in Ohio, so that's always awesome, and um, got to meet up with Sarah Cope, one of my uh, friends from Twitter, who's at the VA, can't see her in person, which is always good. Um, But yeah, on GovLoop, I did a couple of different roundups, the best of the year, always going to do the end of the year, and uh, looking forward uh, to 2010 kind of division there. So yeah, I guess the one thing I did want to just kind of throw out before we uh, jump into the All-Star team we got today is um, starting tomorrow, we're launching another kind of awesome Gov contest uh, around City Camp. So uh, we teamed up with Code for America, a cool kind of new nonprofit. I uh, ran from Jen uh, O'Reilly, and we're going to offer for uh, scholarships to City Camp. So through Code for America for the best, coolest, muni-gov-type projects. So uh, that's on GovLoop now. The link to uh, our site, govloop.uservoice.com. So uh, submit for your... Your coolest new projects and vote on them, and uh, we'll announce the winners. And hopefully, uh, four cool people will get to go to uh, Chicago for city camp. So
1: that's pretty that's cool. It. I actually already voted. Uh, I used half my votes so far. Uh, <laughs> yes, use your votes wisely. <laughs> use your votes wisely.
0: So, Russell, can those be any sort of project? I mean, any level of government?
2: Uh, we're we're uh, city camps for uh, local government, okay. so we're trying to keep it at that at that level. So. Um, so we just mainly want uh you know people that uh, want to go and can't find the ways to go to help help find it. So ideally not a, a federal thing, but uh, more of a state local.
3: Pretty cool.
1: Uh for, do you have uh do you have any uh roundup yeah, for us?
0: I, I do actually, you know, I've been pretty much unplugged for the past ten days. Uh taking a, you know, I've been on Twitter very, very rarely and, and, and actually uh uh, just spending time with the family, which has been nice. But one thing that caught my eye uh uh right before New Year's actually was that the, the uh F C C chairman's um Facebook page was uh was hacked or or and, and he started spamming his uh his friends through through that page. Uh jenikowski's uh they, they got a message folks that folks that were friended to him got a message that said uh you know, I this is how I made money or Adam started uh, got me started making money with this and, and followed with a, a spam link. So, you know, not anybody's immune. The thing that I thought was, uh, was actually quite humorous was Facebook's response is they took down the account, and in order to get it back, the SEC chairman's not going to be treated any differently than anyone else. I guess Facebook, when when your account gets hacked, uh, usually through, through clicking a link or, or something that you probably shouldn't have done, they put you through a remediation process. Basically, I guess you have to uh, – take a short quiz or some sort of short online uh, 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 test to ensure that you kind of understand how it was compromised, et cetera. And so um, that uh, if he wants to get his – if he wants to continue to use Facebook, that he has to get some education about the safe use of uh, that particular tool, which I thought was a pretty interesting way for them to to approach it.
1: (laughs) That's great. Well, I I wanted to mention um, a couple of upcoming events. Um, one is uh, CityCamp, uh, which uh, Steve, you uh, wrestler, you just talked about. That's a, a free event uh, for uh, people who are attending, focused on uh, local government, uh, government 2.0 projects, and uh, it's in Chicago uh, on the uh, 23rd and 24th of January. If folks want to find out more about that, they can go to barcamp.tbworks.com. That's peanutbutterworks.com forward slash CityCamp. And also uh, you can check out CityCamp on Twitter, at CityCamp. The other event I want to mention that's upcoming, another uh, free Gov2o event that has uh, something of a local focus is uh, Gov2o Camp LA, which is going to be February 5th uh, through 7th in Los Angeles. You can find out more at gov2oLA.org. You can also follow on Twitter at Gov20LA underscore. And uh, so both of those uh, events, I think, are going to be pretty cool. Uh, I'm on the uh, organizing committee for Gov20LA. I'm going to introduce our guests in just a second here, um, but um, I guess first we will bring on uh, LaVisa uh, Williams. And uh, LaVisa is uh, an avid Second Life user. She works for the State Department's uh, Office of Innovative Engagement. And, uh, LaVisa, can you just uh, take a couple of minutes to uh, tell us a little uh, about about yourself and what you do and uh, what your uh, engagement is like with Second Life?
4: Sure. Uh, Thank you, Adriel. This is LaVisa Williams. I am the Deputy Director for the Office of Innovative Engagement. Um, We look at using a number of different technologies to um, help the public diplomacy community. So that's basically people who are um, at our embassies and consulates. so it's empowering the officers on the ground to try and engage with their local communities and how to extend that reach through the use of social media. And so uh, Virtual Worlds is one of the more cutting edge technologies that we've been exploring on how we can um, leverage it to extend that conversation and reach more people than maybe we could have through either traditional means or through other social media tools. So we've been active in virtual world technology, um, most specifically Bill May, the director for the office, uh, for about five years now. And we've had a number of different uh, events that have taken place there, um, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes.
1: Great. And also uh, joining us tonight, we have uh, Pam uh, Broviak. Pam is uh, in the public works sector in uh, local government, and uh, one of the first uh, people I met uh, through social media and kind of Gov2O networking, who was very active in Second Life uh, and really has a great grasp of uh, some of the practical applications of that uh, virtual world. Pam, can you uh, give us a a couple of minutes on uh, who you are, what you do, and and why second line?
5: Hi, everyone. Sure. Um, My name is Pam Broviak, and I'm the city engineer assistant director of public works for the city of Geneva here in Illinois. And I've been in public works for probably about 28 years now, uh, first as a technician and then later as an engineer. The reason I really got involved with um, Virtual Worlds is I saw it at, presented at an Autodesk conference by uh, an architect who was designing homes and uh, for clients, and then he would show them in Second Life, and they could move walls and get the home the way they liked it, and then that's how they would build it. And immediately I thought, wow, I can try to use that in my job as an engineer and in public works. So... I was back at the end of 06, and I've been pretty much working in there trying to find ways to use it for work ever since then.
1: Great. And uh, definitely want to talk about and give folks the resource that you've put together as far as uh, identifying uh, official uh, government sites in Second Life. We'll get to that a little later in the program. Uh, also, we have with us, um, we have uh, Eric Uh, Hackathorn. Uh, Eric is with uh, the National Oceanic uh, Administration and uh, it's great to have uh, Eric with us. Uh, Eric, are you there? I Um, am indeed. Great. And uh, tell us a a little bit about what you do. I understand you also have a a company that you run and uh, you're out of Colorado, which is always great to see folks who are in the center of the storm uh, but outside of the Beltway.
3: Well, you know, I think anything that's based in sort of the social aspects and pulling the the people uh, citizens back into government requires a, a certain amount of distance from you know D.C. So uh, yeah, it is nice that we have participation from uh, you know all the time zones here. I think, unless I'm mistaken. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I work for uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Don't forget the atmosphere there. That's uh, I-, I knew there was another A. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's two A's. The second A is silent. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's part of the Department of Commerce. Uh, so it is a federal agency. Uh, and it's dedicated to a lot of different earth science. Uh, so the National Weather Service is in there. That brings you the evening weather. Uh, but also longer-term stuff like climate change, greenhouse effects, the carbon cycle um you know so there's a there's a lot of exciting stuff happening there now but uh we got involved in virtual worlds uh as an agency i guess probably beginning of 2006 um just as a platform for education and outreach you know you can read about tsunamis and hear about melting glaciers due to climate change but to actually be able to experience that at least in some effect in uh, an immersive environment like Virtual Worlds, uh, can be a very powerful education tool when used correctly. Um, so that was kind of our initial goal. Um, but we've since expanded quite a bit and branched into other agencies, uh, which I can talk about as well. But uh, I guess that's probably good for an intro.
1: Great. And uh, also with us tonight is uh, Bill May. Bill is the uh, Director of the Office of Innovative Engagement uh, with the State Department. To, it's got to be one of the coolest job titles uh, around. Um, Bill, uh, thanks uh, so much for joining us, and perhaps if you could introduce yourself, uh, give us a, a, you know elevator pitch of what you do and how Second Life uh, is part of that.
6: Well, uh, LaVisa had touched on some of it uh, a minute ago, but we've actually been working in the, the virtual world space and looking at it for probably, well, it's, uh, at least a good four years now. And the area of the State Department that I work in is, is public diplomacy, and a lot of that has to do with creating mutual understanding so that um, people in other countries uh, get to know and understand us and as well as us get to know and understand them. So when we started looking at virtual worlds, the, the real question was do people get to know each other and uh, develop understandings uh, in these types of spaces? And uh, we actually were in this, in this arena before it became cool and hot uh, before Second Life was hitting the headlines and all the rest of that. So uh, we've actually looked at a number of different virtual worlds, and the reason we're working with Second Life at the moment is that the predominance of the, the registered and active users are actually uh, not U.S. citizens. So um, from our end, that's really the question of, you know, how do we connect with people and, and um, get them to know and understand us in better ways?
1: Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, I think I want to hit a question uh, straight to uh, Pam. Uh, Pam, you've put together this list of uh, government uh, sites, uh, government builds, I guess, in in Second Life. Can you tell us, uh, our listeners, where they can find that, and then uh, maybe talk about some of the things that are going on uh, in that virtual world uh, as far as, as, you know, quote-unquote real
6: government?
5: Sure. Well, we put together a local government group in Second Life. That's one of the great things about the virtual world is it's easy to create groups and find other people with similar interests. So we found a bunch of people who are in local government who are in there, and we created a website. It's munigov.org. And if you go to the website, over on the left-hand side, there's a link to Second Life. And if you take that link down at the bottom of the page, there's a listing of most of the government sites that I could locate where I could tell that definitely they were created by an actual government agency. Because if you go in there, a lot of people have tried to recreate cities, but they're not hosted by the actual city. They're citizens. So I tried to only locate the ones that are, you can tell, run by government.
1: And, and what are some of the examples? What are some of the, the places you've found that are uh, officially sponsored by uh, government?
5: Well, our federal government is huge in the virtual world. And so a lot of the listings are like the NOAA, NASA, CDC. Um, the military has an extensive area in there. And I talked to one of the gentlemen who managed most of the sites there and he indicated to me that they have a much more extensive layout of virtual worlds, but it's behind a firewall. So even though it's huge in Second Life, I guess from what I understand, it's even larger, uh, where it's more private. The rest of them, there's a lot of UK governments using virtual worlds. It's amazing that, um, Britain has really taken to this. And then there's some Canadian. There's one German in there. There's some embassies. And uh, for the United States right now, there's really not very many. There's our Munich site, which is really just, like I said, a group of us. But then there's a county in California that I found.
0: So Pam, this is Steve Lunsford. Yeah. I've also found, um, are, are any of you working on the, uh, there's a wiki out there for real-life government? Uh for Second Life that that has some examples as well?
5: Yes. Yeah, I
6: actually um, uh oh, no, go ahead.
5: <laughs> well, um it's actually again our federal government, um, which like I said has just been huge in this, they created a, a group for real life government in Second Life and then they do have a wiki where they list a lot of sites.
4: I, I was gonna
3: mention that uh I actually helped set it up with uh, with Sue Linden, who's a you know, everyone of the last name, a Linden, is an employee of <laughs> Linden Lab, so you can easily recognize them in, in uh, second Life due to their uh, to their last name. it's kind of the the royalty of the virtual world in this case. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a wiki. Um, I have to be honest, I haven't added and maintained it the way I'd like to, uh, as well as a fairly active group uh, in Second Life. Um, which is just a, a fancy way of essentially finding people with similar interests, and those are both called real life government and Second Life. And it was never intended necessarily to be federal. Just that, uh, you know, it seemed like federal agencies were familiar with one another, so they glom together. And of course, Pam has the whole, you know, MuniGov, more state local stuff. So uh, now that we're all fairly well established, we're uh, managing to reach out and connect with one another. So. Not necessarily the most efficient way, but uh, hey, it's government.
1: I, I was hoping uh, for someone I, I I know I'm not active in Second Life a wrestler. You've played around a bit, but maybe one of you experts can tell us a little bit, you know, about how how it even works. Uh, for it is a much smaller uh, network than something like Facebook or Twitter, but uh, it sounds like this very very robust, and you've got a great international audience. I don't know, LaVisa or Eric, maybe, do you want to field just a general overview of of what it's all about? I imagine you both have some thoughts there. (laughs) Go
4: for it. Okay. Um, You know, it's not an easy thing to explain, especially when you can't see it. It sounds like an odd thing, this 3D virtual thing, and everyone says, well, what do you do there? That's the most common question we get. Um, So a lot of times we actually have to show people various ways people have used the platform, and I think, as Bill was saying earlier, you know, we tried to figure out, well, do people really connect? Can you really have relationships in Second Life? And for me personally, I thought that was a very interesting um, proposition, and so I really uh, decided that the only way I could really figure out how this virtual world stuff works was, you know, of course I was there for my work, but it also meant that I had to put in additional time on top to explore the world on my time and learn how it works, because it's like learning a new language. There's a whole set of different societal and kind of cultural norms that you have to learn and figure out. It may look like real life in some cases, but it may operate completely differently. And, in fact, it's really true about other social networks and other kinds of of communities that are out there, online communities. Um, But it's something I don't think we think that much about. But in virtual worlds, it's very obvious, because when you're in there and you're interacting with people, there is a certain way to do it, and you have to learn that. And so we find that the best way to help newbies learn how to operate and um, be successful in a virtual world, especially like Second Life, where we're operating, is when we walk with them and help them and show them the ropes and explain the little nuances that make a real difference in how your interactions um, go and then ultimately how you build those relationships.
6: Let me go ahead and kick. This is Bill. Let me go ahead and kick in. um, Maybe by example on how we actually first got involved in all of this uh, way back when. Um, There was a very visionary thinker that uh, that I knew, and I asked him, "How can we use technology to advance public diplomacy? This engagement that we have. Uh, We do all these all these exchange programs, sending people from this country to other countries, from other countries to here." student exchanges youth exchanges things like that but i asked this guy once i explained to him what what public diplomacy was and creating this mutual understanding he went away and he came back in a couple of weeks and, he, and a and group of us and a small group of us in the state department sat down with him and he said what you do is you create a, a virtual cyberspace place where kids from different countries can come together and work on stuff work on things build a building paint a picture write a story um, not that kids like to write poetry, but maybe write poetry, poems. And then when those kids have worked together in this, collaboratively in this space, using avatars, which I'll come back to in a minute, then they'll get to know each other. And when they go back and they're, they're engaged in their classes, then they'll think, well, this American kids aren't such bad kids after all, and vice versa. And then you can have teachers collaborate in this virtual space, this three dimensional, immersive, collaborative space that that has a proximity connotation to it. And then when these teachers have worked together in this cyberspace on lessons planned teaching methodologies and things like that, then they'll think, well, those American teachers aren't so so bad after all, and again, vice versa. But in that kind of this this much more um, proximity-oriented space where I can see where you are and you see where I am, People have these conversations, these dialogues, these engagements, and the teachers would be able to, to hold talk about, well, and look, if you virtually look each other in the eye and say, well, how do you deal with a kid who's got ADD? How do you really deal with that in a classroom situation? And so you have the students and you have the, the teachers, and then you can take media, everything, video, audio, et cetera, and put it in, in a virtual library, and people can come and watch a movie together and have a conversation while they're watching the movie together, and you can create that virtual library. Well, what this person was talking about was doing a whole lot of the things that we actually do already in real life, if you will, uh, that last three feet, the eyeball-to-eyeball connection, except he was talking about doing it in cyberspace uh, using the avatar uh, concept, and one of the things I think is very key about this whole avatar issue, and if you haven't seen the movie yet, it's it's a very cool movie, but it's really not particularly relevant to what we're talking about. But as this concept of the avatar, if we, were, if we were actually having this panel and holding this in Second Life, which I think all of us have done this type of thing, we wouldn't know who sat where on the panel session and who was in the audience. And it is a very um, uh, a one-on-one type of uh, an experience that that uh, you go through. And as LaVisa noted, you really have to go in – and try it to, to comprehend how it works. But um, that's how we got into this. And I'll throw out one of the teasers. If you think about a lot of the online education right now, it's a lot, very flat. You go in and you take a class and you answer questions, etc., online, but you don't talk to the person next to you, and you don't get together after class to, to, to have further conversations about the teacher or the material or whatever. And in cyberspace, in, in Second Life and other virtual worlds, you can do that. So it, it actually, this medium brings something to the table that other mediums do not. And I'll stop there.
0: So, so this is Steve Lutz. Let me ask a couple of, of, of kind of technical questions. And I've, I've played around in Second Life as well. Um, one thing that I've found is that it it seems to be extremely um, bandwidth intensive as well as, uh, in some cases, hardware intensive. And is that uh, – uh, um, something that maybe holds back some folks from being able to participate in in, in as rich a manner as they otherwise might, given what they, what they may be deployed from a city or a state or a, or a federal government level from a workstation standpoint?
3: You know, I, I certainly uh, – this is Eric, by the way. I certainly think that probably is the case nowadays. Um, you know, and there's a few ways to address that. Um, The first I would say is that we are talking about Second Life tonight, but do keep in mind that that is one of literally about 250 different platforms which fall into this category. Now, you have to kind of look at the use cases. When it comes to education, outreach, you know, training, diplomacy, Second Life might be a good choice, but you do have to make certain assumptions about your audience when it comes to hardware and bandwidth. The other thing I would say is that You know, it's kind of the age-old question of, uh, you know, (laughs) old wine and new bottles. I mean, when we were designing websites, and I don't know how many of you have a history in in website design, but, uh, you know, it was always a question of, well, how big can the images be? What resolution, you know, can I design the page for, you know, and you have to go through all this list of questions on how to make your website accessible, (laughs) Uh, and in many ways, those questions are being revisited and reaxed in the new context of virtual worlds. There is an entrance barrier there, just like there is when it comes to websites, and it really boils down to a use case of defining what technology can you use given what you're trying to accomplish. And I think there is a niche for virtual worlds. Is it an answer for everything? No, you know. And we'll still have websites around for a long time to, to meet the needs of people with lower bandwidths. Um, but uh, you know, it's still, I think, certainly worth looking at.
0: Yeah, one of the coolest things that I saw. This is Steve Lunsford again. Is I was down on, on Capitol Hill at the Rayburn Building earlier uh, or last summer. Um, I figured it was August or September. There was a, a virtual world kind of little mini conference there for members of Congress um, to kind of see some of the the utility. And one of one of the applications that I saw that uh, a firm down in um, uh, based somewhere in Virginia uh, had put together was. Is a training for um, first responders and medical personnel. So you have uh, first responders that, uh, uh, from a lot of different areas, that that get together. You know, you know that that it's physically impossible or, or cost prohibitive for them to get together to, to figure out how they would respond uh, in an earthquake or another Katrina or whatever it is where where there may be uh, medical assistance needed. This is a way that they can can create a physical space, figure out you know how they're going to lay out tents and and triage and that sort of stuff, and uh, nurses and doctors can uh, kind of you know war game in this virtual you know realm, and and again as, as you mentioned earlier uh, a way for them for them to kind of interact with one another so they at least have some sort of understanding of the way that they would work in that situation, without again the the the, the traditional expense or time. Or other barriers that you know travel that sort of those sort of barriers much easier for them to get, conduct those sort of things and they had you know 15 or 20 of these different demos uh, laid out anything from that to um, uh, to to Manning you know drones and, and helicopters and things of that yeah. nature.
6: This is Bill. Um, the, the proximity aspect of working in virtual worlds. You know, um, when when you've had a meeting, you've gone someplace, or done something in a virtual world. You remember the, the layout of the room, who was where, who did what, when, those types of things. And where it gets filed away in your brain is very different than if it's something that you've just read. So um, from the first responder training aspect of it, if you, the first responder goes through and practices with his, his teammates in, in a build that replicates what the real world is, then they're very likely to, to remember that just as if they had actually been there, done that in that location. And it's a whole lot cheaper to conduct those kinds of exercises in a virtual world than is to, say, close down part of Washington, D.C. or New York City and conduct that kind of training there.
1: And, Pam, I remember you uh, um, writing about uh, the possibilities of, say, uh, building out uh, curb ramps or handicap-accessible uh, public works projects and then being able to test them out in, in Second Life. Have you been able to do anything like that or, uh, you know, expose people to some of the challenges, say someone who is using a wheelchair faces dealing with a a public works project that's not fully accessible?
5: Well, I've definitely used the virtual tools in my design since finding um, Second Life. And one of the simple things is I've used it to design manholes. I made a kit because manholes and pipes are always standard sizes and when I want to find out how big of a manhole I need, I just pull them out of my virtual kit and throw the pipes in, and it looks as if it will look in real life. So I can tell right there whether I need a five-foot diameter manhole or a six. And you brought up the ADA ramps. One thing I've noticed is people have a very difficult time visualizing how to construct them. And so by coming into the virtual world, I can lay out an ADA ramp and check all the slopes and make sure everything fits with buildings and that it it complies with all the regulations. So definitely I think the visualization is a huge aspect. And then like everyone else is talking about, the training, especially now with cities, our budgets are cut way back for training. We had a huge conference in there this year. We had 80 to 100 people attend, and no one had to spend any money traveling. So the emergency response, the ADA training, the engineering, all that can go on for anyone across the whole entire world for just the cost of logging on.
3: Wow, that's definitely... Oh, sorry, to to follow up on the note of facilities, um, you know, we're doing this more internally than externally, but... uh, You know, NOAA, much like a lot of other agencies, has, you know, facilities in all 50 states, not to mention some fairly remote locations like, you know, in the middle of Siberia and the South Pole. Um, A lot of those facilities get constructed uh, before the scientists ever get a chance to visit. And what ends up happening a lot of the times is, you know, the scientists move into their spot and realize, well, you know, (laughs) we really needed an outlet over in this corner, or, you know, we need a, a hood, you know, we're mixing noxious chemicals in this room or a fresh air intake because we're doing air sampling and, you know, wanting to collect measurements. Uh, So the the ability to create a facility first virtually uh, and have scientists visit that before you even break ground in real life, Um, you could almost think of it like a collaborative CAD design uh, where you can get people looking at the facility before it's built. Um, You know, there's some huge potential cost savings there.
1: And, Eric, I wanted to follow up with you on, on, uh, you mentioned there are
3: 250 different virtual world platforms. Yeah, uh, (laughs) there's a a blue book. uh, If you Google it, you can probably look it out. That's uh, put out by the Association of Virtual Worlds. Uh, And they use the term fairly loosely. Uh, You know, a virtual world can take a lot of different forms, you know, from World of Warcraft to Second Life to, well, look it up. Uh, and they fall into different categories and stuff, but it really is a very, a booming uh, market and industry. You know, I think in the future what we're going to have to see though is a bit of consolidation. You know, to make sure that if we construct in Second Life, you know, that content, that infrastructure, the IP, you know, has a future beyond any particular platform, much like we see with the web nowadays.
1: Yeah, I, I, I've seen a lot of discussion lately about uh, Twitter, for example, and it'll probably survive because it's becoming a uh, the plumbing of the Internet rather than an application, and, uh, you know, everything is built around the core interface. And then I remember a discussion uh, back and forth with Steve Ressler back in, uh, like, the middle of 2008 about, Uh, him being a late early adopter and sometimes those are the people that that get the right platforms how how can someone you know especially governments um you know that if they're going to build infrastructure or devote time and training and staff resources how are they supposed to figure out which one of these platforms is good is it second life or are there real competitors out there
6: I can speak up if nobody else does. (laughs) Go ahead, Eric. You take a shot at it first, and then I'll pitch it.
3: I I think that's a a very important question. I mean, you know, when you get right down to it, we are talking tax dollars here. Uh, And to make sure that there is a a decent return, you know, the stuff that we do build should have a certain amount of shelf life. Now, does that shelf life have to be infinite? Well, no. We don't keep websites around forever, hopefully. Um, But it should have a good length. Is Second Life the ultimate choice? Boy, that's a political (laughs) religious (laughs) topic. Um, You know, I I should say that there's been a lot of work done uh, in standards. Um, One particular project that comes to mind is called OpenSim, uh, which is quite literally a reverse engineering of the Second Life server portion uh, to where, much like you can set up your own website and host on your own infrastructure, now you can set up your own virtual world server. Uh, that's entirely open source and is being developed around protocols, which, of course, are are open as well. Um, <laughs> the term alpha comes to mind. Uh, so, you know, we are very much bleeding edge here when we're discussing this, but there's been a good amount of success in transferring content from Second Life into OpenSim. So, to me, that kind of represents uh, a bumpy roadmap, but a roadmap, nonetheless, uh, to to see some future to this content, uh, even if you know Linden Lab, heaven forbid, went belly up.
1: And, and are you able to move your your uh, virtual presence from platform to platform, um, especially with this OpenSim project?
3: That is an excellent question, uh, and there, there's a lot more than just technical questions there. If you think about what it means to move an avatar from one world to another, you know there's all sorts of identity issues. You know, how do I prove that the Eric Hackathorn in Second Life is the Hackathorn in Platform X? You know, if I buy virtual content from a creator in Second Life, did they want me to actually be able to move that item to a different world? You know, what does it mean if I bought one copy from someone? And licensed one copy, but moved it into a, a world that I can control and make as many copies as I want. There's intellectual property issues. <laughs> There's identity issues. There's a whole slew of issues. Which, uh, yeah, it's going to take a few years to iron out. That's definitely the direction that people are headed. Um, but just like we don't have one identity yet, uh, you know, on websites, uh, governments had a huge issue with PKI. You know, who controls the certificates? Who controls identity? Uh, we haven't even managed to do that with websites yet, let alone virtual worlds. So
6: <laughs> we're up for some interesting challenges over the next few years. Let me go, let me go ahead and, and hit a couple of points there. The the Labs did something very interesting quite a while back, and they, they decided that with their platform, if you built it, you owned it. So it was your property, it was your intellectual property. It didn't belong to Linden Labs, which is different than some of the other platforms that are out there. Um, IBM has actually pushed this whole interoperability concept quite diligently, and they have demonstrated the ability to take an avatar and assets and move it between Second Life and OpenSim. So if you will, they're able to take and run, uh, have their avatar work inside the firewall, inside their building, and then go outside into the real world, if you will. And I think while that is really just on, on one of the platforms, that concept of being able to have your, your assets, your intellectual property inside your firewall and your building and move outside um, was exactly in the right direction. That said, you have a number of these other platforms that are, much more locked down in terms of what you can do and what you can create. And um, the, the ability to take your assets, your intellectual property, is, is much more restricted. But I, I think in terms of the – I want to – Eric used the terms taxpayers' dollars, and I think that's very important. One of the things that, that you learn if you going in and working in, in one space or, or the other, you find out what works and how these things work, uh, Lavisa mentioned earlier talking about uh, the, sort of the culture of how things work in, in the virtual spaces. And I think what you learn in one, working in one, two, or three different virtual world platforms lets you make good decisions on where to put your assets and your resources for the long haul. Um, second life, I just saw some numbers the other day. It's actually, I think, had a 50% increase in the number of active users over the last year. i, I, I I, I'm not quite sure. I don't quite remember where I saw that, but they're still growing, and the it is a an evolving rising tide. So I think that what we're learning as federal agents is using these tools now. We'll be able to make better uh, decisions in terms of efficiency, appropriate um, applications versus reacting to oh this is cool or we should go do this. Or, we should go do that. It's pretty much uh, brass tacks if you. Any of us that are on this panel uh, have been there, done that, and you know if, a, if an idea is full of smoke, uh, we'll call it down.
1: Yeah, and how that. many um, active users are there on Second Life? Do any of you have the the kind of current numbers?
6: Uh,
3: well, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, that's a more complicated question than you think. Um, concurrent users, in other words, number of users logged in at any given time. Um, tends to hover around 70,000 right now. Um, they also have users over the last 60 days, total number of accounts. Um, what, <laughs> and what's to be the honest, day number like? Do you know? What, what now? The 60-day number, what is that like? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that off the top of my head. If you open up the client <laughs> before you even log in, it will show you in the, the upper right-hand corner. Um, but one thing that gets confusing there is people can have multiple accounts, and so just like web pages again, I, I know I keep pulling back this comparison to websites, but it's it's something that people tend to understand a little more. You know, you have page views, you know, versus unique visitors, <laughs> versus you know, number of elements within a page. Um, you know, any way you slice it, the numbers are substantially lower than something like Facebook. Um, I don't see that as necessarily bad, but, you know, it is uh, – you should understand those numbers before you, you know, get in discussions on ROI or or how you're planning on using a particular
6: environment. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I just looked at the numbers for you. Uh, last 60 days is about 1.4 million, and online right now is about 65,000. Okay, But one of the things I think is really important here, and and it has been for us, is looking at it's not not all about huge, large numbers. When we hold events or do things inside of Second Life, we're looking at it as a a takeoff on what we either can't do or would like to do in a real-life environment, or it lets us do some things we couldn't do in a real-life environment. So, um, we, when we hold events and do things, it's not a matter of getting hundreds of thousands or a million people involved. It would be more analogous to holding a panel session like this and having 80 or 100 people uh, listen and participate with the panel, and then we can watch the conversations before, during, and after that take place just in that group. So it, it's different than a website.
2: I have a question, though, about kind of social gaming, which seems kind of a, a correlated issue that I guess some would call virtual worlds too. I was wondering your take as you see kind of the rise of these uh, FarmVilles and PlayFish and all these different kind of games online that are really big. That are, I think would you consider those virtual worlds? And um, you know, I know USDA was looking to doing some uh, virtual games uh, around nutrition. Didn't know kind of what people's thoughts were on, on how it relates to uh, social games, how it relates to virtual worlds, and and, and what you think about that.
5: Well, this is Pam. Um, I wanted to talk about that because that's kind of where my focus has been going lately. I really see that as being huge for training. I I can't help but notice everyone's spending so much time and effort on gaming. And if now we can treat games, you know, in a way that we can educate people about our jobs and about government and about what we do every day and give out achievements in the way we give them out in a game, I think that with the next generation coming up, that's going to go over extremely well. I think that's definitely an area that we're going to see a lot of movement in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just just think of my own self, you know, all, all the yearly tests you have to take, Uh, Training-wise, you know, part of the government, whether it's security or ethics and uh, all of those, um, I think there's much ways to make that
1: much more interactive
2: and and game-like, and also kind of with the the citizens as well to interact with the content. I know uh, Army's done a bunch of games over over the years that have been pretty important, but I imagine the games
1: and virtual worlds will kind of bridge on some of this stuff. And,
2: it Bill, you were talking about uh,
1: education, right? Uh, have you seen any innovative uses of, of uh, you know, actual, like, accredited or certified education? In um,
6: well, the, the, the most uh, documented one is probably Eric mentioned uh, Ken Hudson out of Loyalist College up in Canada. Uh, at that college, they have a, a, a coursework that leads to folks being able to become um, border crossing agents you know, the guys that worked, the men and women that worked the uh, the booths at the border crossings. And they went, um, I'm not I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, but they're pretty, it's rough. They went from a 28% pass rate to a 75% pass rate for the, the individuals that went through and used the second life simulation. They built out a border crossing uh, area. And so people would, you'd, you'd drive through or you would man the toll booth and go through this. And so the, the, uh, the students, having experienced this numerous times, the pass rate when they went to, to take the test to be border crossing agents uh, went way up.
3: You know, I might also mention that actually within the next week or so, NASA is set to release uh, an MMO, a massively multiplayer online uh, game, uh, surrounding a lunar uh, base experience. Um, they did some prototyping in Second Life, uh, and so used the lessons learned there, uh, and actually brought on a gaming company, and will be releasing it through, uh, you know, traditional video game channels, um, Steam, if that rings any bells with the gamers, uh, you know. And so, <laughs> overnight, they're looking at maybe uh, you know 100,000 new users to this game, uh, and it's it's a very powerful way to educate. Um, so, keep an eye out for that in the next couple of weeks and and they're so they 're building their own
1: uh it, it is a virtual world uh game but it 's on their own platform correct
3: it's it 's not on second life uh, it will be uh their own platform and to be honest with you, I probably can 't comment too much more intelligently uh in terms of the details uh, but if you do a quick google search for nasa m m o that should turn up some information for it and I imagine once it's uh, ready to come out, there'll be a little more press surrounding
6: it. I have an international example to, to put on the table for you, real quick. We've got uh, it's a project where the, that's um, in development, so I can't say that it's definitely a, a go at this point. But there's a university in Cairo uh, where the architecture um, school there is using Second Life to for the students to be able to to. Con- to build their architecture projects out. They're looking at a collaborative exercise with a U.S. university, where the students in each each country will build out sort of an urban planning exercise, build out a a common area, a green space, that would reflect the culture of each country, and then they're gonna get together and look and, and collaborate together and then build one together. So they will go through and learn how to use the tool, how to lay out urban uh, planning that fits their culture. Uh, If you want to consider the difference between Cairo and L.A., two uh, in some ways very different in other ways similar um, in terms of some of their demographics. Um, So the students are going to work on their own initially, and then they'll work together and do a cultural comparison. So that's something that's in the works right now.
1: And that's,
6: uh, you, you see, you have multiple government sponsors for that project? Um, that's a project that's been proposed by a professor at uh, the Cairo University, and he and some other folks are talking to a couple of other U.S. universities. Uh, so whether the State Department's going to be involved in that or not, I don't know yet.
1: LaVisa, weren't you recently involved in some kind of a a large concert held in Second Life? Can you tell us about that?
4: Sure. Um, Actually, it wasn't as recent as we would like. It was probably um, about a year ago or so. uh, We held an international jazz festival in Second Life. Uh, We had musicians from France, Germany, uh, Australia, uh, the U.K., and then two different places within the United States. Um, they came in and we had an eight hour jazz festival for, with about, oh, I think 200 avatars total. Um, and then we also had, in order to make virtual worlds more accessible to people in real life and get them to kind of get a feel for Second Life without having to do the learning curve, we normally set up um, a conference room and have a display on a large screen, uh, flat screen, so people can shoulder soak over one of us to get a feel for not only the event but be able to participate with some of the people there without having to uh, get an avatar and everything else. So um, it, was, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was an amazing thing to see all these people come together. We also held a uh, During that jazz festival, we had a panel session that was really talking about, well, jazz and public diplomacy. So, you know, how is it, as Bill was talking about, we can use music to build mutual understanding? Uh, music is something that the State Department has used um, with their jazz ambassadors, which is now called Rhythm Road, um, to bring musicians and take them around the world, and and just say, you know, listen, if you like my music, and if, you know, this may be a good foundation for us to continue having a discussion on not only that but other things. Um, so, it was um, it was a good time. There's there's still people who actually ask me about the jazz concert, and if we're going to be doing some more music uh, events than we would like to in the future. Um, in fact, one of the other ways that we try to extend some of the events that we've held in Second Life is through Machinima. Uh, Machinima is basically making a video of things that happen in a virtual world. Um, so we have a couple of those, which I'll tweet out as soon as I can get a connection, um, so you guys can take a look at those. Um, and those were probably the last uh, three to four events that we held.
1: Great, and for people uh, listening, uh, LaVisa's Twitter uh, handle is at LaVisaTalk, and uh, if you can check out those links there. Uh, fantastic. Um, I know uh, I was excited to hear that, uh, I guess, um, Kevin, uh, Mc, uh, Kevin Curry, who's one of the uh, guys working on CityCamp, uh, he's trying to get a panel on uh, a mixed reality panel on virtual worlds and government. Uh, going at the Web 2.0, or excuse me, the Gov 2.0 Expo uh, later this year. So hopefully we'll be seeing more uh, of, of that kind of thing. That would be pretty neat to see something with the uh, participants in the virtual worlds as well as the panel, and I know uh, at least a couple of you I think he's reached out to about uh, trying to put something together like that.
4: Well, and that's actually our next event uh, that we're doing in Second Life is a mixed reality event, in fact, with Noah, with Eric. Uh, to talk about environmental issues. So that should be coming up hopefully January, February timeframe.
3: And we've had some great mixed reality events in the past. Um, uh, One of the projects that we work on uh, is Science on a Sphere. Uh, You can find it at the URL sos.noaa.gov. This is actually a real product, so it's a big ball that sits in the middle of the room and projectors shine on it from different angles to create a spherical projection screen. Uh, It's great for showing off uh, Earth data, (laughs) quite literally, as a virtual world. Uh, But we've taken that and put it into Second Life. Uh, And most recently at COP15, which was the big uh, conference in Copenhagen just a couple weeks ago here, uh, we had the real sphere uh, in the exhibit hall, and then uh, the same data showing on a sphere in Second Life for people to be able to see that weren't at the... uh, at the conference itself, and then experimented a bit with uh, communication between the two. Uh, And that was put on with a group called One Climate.
1: Bill, have you seen any uh, great uses of of a uh, mixed reality event where you've got people gathering in real space? Um, I know it seems like Egypt or Cairo has done a fair amount with Second Life. It seems like I'm always reading about something.
6: Well, one of the things that happened there with Egypt was, um, it's, it's kind of an interesting short story, the, uh, the professor at this, this uh, Cairo University started working with a U.S. Uh, architect, and uh, he, between the two of them, they built the layout for a, uh, a shopping mall, a large shopping mall complex. And they built the whole thing in Second Life, and they showed the the entire build, instead of using blueprints, which most people can't read blueprints to save their lives, they built the whole thing in Second Life and walked the potential uh, owner through it, and um, given that reality, they decided to go ahead and move with it, and it was very interesting that the the potential owner and the the folks that actually funded it uh, could very much understand it walking through it and seeing the space and what it would look like, etc., far better than they would have been able to look at blueprints or even small models and sort of guesstimate how things would really work. So the ability to walk through it was, was quite cool. Um, the, the augmented reality or mixed reality side of things, I think it's, a, it's an application that that is a little complex in the, the actual execution. And in some ways, it's, um, I think we're still looking at, at various ways to try that and see how it works out and use it. Uh, we were looking at using it in conjunction with COP15, where we would have had somebody uh, in, at COP15 on video cam and project that into Second Life and also into um, a product we we had. We're using Adobe Connect for that, but really taking and mixing the on-the-ground on the uh, with a webcam from COP15, making that available to an audience inside of an international audience in Second Life and also through our online chat uh, tool. So really mixing up three different platforms to to engage different parts of the world. But I think it's an area that, that's uh, ripe for some development, looking at some outreach.
1: Yeah, you know, so so part of the problem is is getting the virtu- the the real life people into
6: the virtual world, huh? Right. And and with a mixed reality that lets you sort of leapfrog that whole issue.
5: This is Pam. Um, I worked with a bar camp in London for um, building. It's called B2 Camp, and about a year or so ago we did something like this where we had them stream into Second Life to an audience that was in there watching, and then actually because I couldn't go to London, I gave my presentation through Second Life, so they just showed me on the screen in Second Life giving the presentation it worked out pretty well, but from what I understand, the, the difficulty is it works best if you have a Mac, because I guess there's problems with a PC streaming in the second line.
6: I, I suppose in full disclosure, the, the, the four of us have actually um, worked on a as a, as a panel uh, for a, um, a presentation at the National Academy of Sciences here in Washington, D.C., and Pam and Eric uh, presented from Second Life and discussing what they the, the their projects and how they were using virtual worlds, along with a couple of other folks. So, I mean, we, that was probably, I don't know, two or two and a half years ago. That uh, And at that point, I don't, I'm not sure that I'd met, actually met either of them in, in the flesh, but only uh, in, uh, in the virtual world side of things. But the professional relationship developed from that, and I felt comfortable enough in having them do a presentation.
1: We've got just a couple of minutes left here. Um, I was thinking maybe uh, if you want to take just uh, maybe 15, 20 seconds to give us uh, maybe top resource for people kind of following up on conversation about government and virtual worlds.
4: I'll go first. Uh, this is Lavisa. I would say that the one shout out I want to do is to Paulette Robinson and all the work that she's doing with the Federal Consortium for Virtual Worlds. It's basically where federal agencies get together and talk about and collaborate with each other on what's going on in the virtual world, so it's not just restricted to Second Life, and they're doing some really interesting work there, and Paula is out of NDU.
6: This is Bill. I'm going to ditto that with uh, that Paulette. Has, has just been uh, fabulous in helping pull everybody together on this. Also, IBM has been doing quite a bit of work, Uh, in this area, and so I think they're a very strong player in the the overall field as well. Great. Thank
1: you. Eric, you want to hit it?
3: Sure. Well, you know, I was going to hit the Federal Consortium for Virtual Worlds as well, but I guess that one's pretty much shot dead. Uh, They are starting a new VGOV initiative, which I think has some interesting promise, which will be sort of a government-run virtual world environment. Uh, They're in the middle of an RFP right now, which should be out shortly, uh, next, after that, they'll be selecting a virtual world platform for governments, uh, and then in collaboration with the USDA, uh, begin to host uh, environments which uh, government will be able to take advantage of uh, through kind of a secure government-owned network. Um, the other one I'd shout out to would be CILANS, Uh That's short for Science Islands, S-C-I-L-A-N-D-S. Uh, It's a mini-continent, an area where a number of organizations have chosen to share their virtual borders in Second Life. Uh, And it's all about science and technology. So NOAA is there, NASA, uh, Department of Energy will be opening an island here probably in the next week. Uh, NIH is there as well, as well as a number of museums and universities. And you can visit uh, there at silence.org.
1: Great. And Pam, do you have... uh top links you want to leave us with?
5: Well, I think the best way to find out what's going on is to try to join Second Life and find these groups, the MuniGov group, the um, real-life government group in Second Life, and find us in there and come to meetings and go to our events. And I just really think it's the best way to find out is to go in there. Great. Right.
4: I also want to do a shout-out for GovLib because actually a number of us have put in sort of, uh, if you're looking to get started in Second Life and Virtual Worlds, uh, sort of what our experiences were when we first joined. Um, they're pretty interesting. Uh, you'll probably be laughing, uh, but it's a good way to see kind of uh, some of the experiences that people have had, both good, bad, and otherwise, and get a feel for some of the issues that we try and look at every day.
2: Yeah, that, that's a fun thread. People can check that. Just uh, hit the search button,
1: search Second Life on Godloop. That's a fun one. Great. <laughs> Well, thank you all so much uh, for joining us. I really appreciate it. And, uh, again, Happy New Year, best for 2010, and look forward to seeing some of you at upcoming events or maybe in second line. Hope to see you there.
4: Thank you. All
1: Thanks, right, Rachel. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right. Thanks, folks, for listening. We'll be back uh, next week with Dan Munns uh, from the uh, National Academy uh, of Public Administration. Uh, Thanks for listening, and um, that's it for this edition of gov 2 Radio on Blog Talk Radio.